Today, we have the privilege to sit and talk with Dr. Ellen Tennyson, Dr. Desiree Leibengood, Joshua Edmond, Jonathan Barrett, Shiloh Shostrom, Pastor Nick Flatiger, and Pastor Neil Rich. Today, we wrap up our Cultivate Conference with a series of questions and some good discussion on the questions that surface from our conference today. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. My name is Amos J. Olivares, and I serve here at Cedar Valley as an executive pastor, and I am your host. Whether Cedar Valley is your home church or not, maybe you don't even go to church and somebody turns you on to the podcast. I'm so glad you're listening. You can expect this podcast to be honest, fun, and provide godly perspective on the messy of life. Here's what we know. Everybody's got a little messy in their life, and nobody wants to talk about it. Today is extra special because we are live and we've never done this before, so let's get started. All right, do me a favor. Let's first appreciate all of our guests who are with us this morning. What a wonderful, wonderful job. So uh, my job today is to ask questions that I think we all had when we listened in on the sessions Uh, that they all did such a good job of delivering on. We had some secret service workers in breakouts who were sending questions in. As you spoke, um, you took them to a place where they wanted to know a little bit more or ask something specific, and so we obviously don't have time to go through all of those, um, but we sure are going to do our best to make the most with the next 30 minutes that we um, have. Uh, so this will also be our September podcast, our Lean Into the Messy podcast. So this will be audio recorded, so you can find this anywhere you stream podcast. Uh, in a couple of days, that'll be up on all places where you uh, listen to podcast. So I'm going to start where we left off with Dr. Tennyson, just because it's the most fresh. So here's kind of like our guidelines up here. You each have a microphone. Two people will share one microphone, except for Dr. Tennyson has one still on. So, Neil, you, when you want to say something, you take my microphone. Um, and, oh, you have a microphone. Okay, good. So you'll borrow a microphone with me. Um, I'll ask somebody a question, and then once they give a response, you're all welcome to chime in and give some. So just keep in mind, we have 30 minutes. Uh, we have seven of you, and so now one person take everybody's time. But uh, if you've got something that you want to say, say it. Cool? So, Dr. Tennyson, you talk about a subject that is extremely sensitive um, when it comes to the LGB. And we can save all the rest for another time, too. Um, but there's a fine line when it comes to it's easy to love people like that when they're kind of far away from you. But what happens to those of us who have dear loved ones who are maybe parents or children or siblings or neighbors or friends that you love dearly, you want your children to be around them, you uh, want to live life around them, um, and there's obvious differences and the boundaries becomes a big question, like how much is too much, do I let them 
go spend the night? Do I let them be with them alone? Like, there's, you know, how do you balance that? How, how do we do that? How do we love the people in our life that are in that world? And, and how do we do so in a way that really honors God? I, that's a phenomenal question. I, first, be in a relationship with anyone who's willing to be in a relationship with you. You know, again, part of the script that some people are struggling with is the idea that if you don't agree with me on the part that I consider to be the most important thing about me, then somehow you hate me. And so there are times where parents of children and uh, siblings and others have been in a situation where I have a loved one who thinks I don't love them because I don't agree with them with this behavior. And so if they're willing to be in a relationship with you, absolutely be in a relationship with them. That doesn't mean you have to change your stance on the behavior is prohibited. That doesn't mean you have to say that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm willing to tolerate. No, no, I, look, I, I love you. I still think that the Bible has a certain view of sex that this doesn't fit in. And that's where I'm standing. I think a lot of times we just don't understand where each other is coming from. I think a lot of people in the LGBT community still assume the church has a similar view of sex in general that they have. And that many times I think we need to take the conversation back to more fundamentals to recognize, no, we are saying something that is so radically different that I think sometimes if that difference was understood, the LGBT community might be more accepting of us in terms of saying, okay, wait a minute, you, you really just see, your worldview is so different than mine. And if I accept that you have this worldview, then maybe I can see this. But the other thing we have to do is we still have to speak out on those issues that affect the LGBT community unfairly. Because no one should ever be a, a, a victim of injustice. No one should ever be harmed. No one should ever be mistreated. And we as a church have to be willing to say, we will stand in the gap for you whenever mistreatment comes your way. You know, the one thing that, that I love as an example in Southern California, Saddleback Church was one of the leading institutions in our country on fighting the AIDS crisis. And even though they never changed their theology regarding sexuality, they were so forefront in fighting AIDS that they had an incredible relationship with the gay community. And yet people in the gay community knew what they stood for, but they also felt like this church is for us. And so in your relationship, can you find ways of doing that? But again, you can't control that other person. And sometimes they might give you a test that you just cannot pass without sacrificing who you are. And I think we need to understand that. I don't know if I'm answering everything. Oh, yeah, that's great. Wondering if anybody wants to jump in on that. I just want to ask you a really practical question, because I think it's a question yeah. that a lot of people have dealt with. And if they haven't, they will. And it's a very common question. That is this. What counsel do you give someone who's invited to a gay marriage? It's a great question. What shapes me, and I'll tell you right now, there is disagreement with Christians on this. There are some Christians who will say, look, you love these people. You want to still be in their lives. They're inviting the most important event of their lives. I feel like I should go. As a pastor, and, and I'll say, this has been shaped for me as a pastor. Whenever I would do a wedding, a line that I put in every wedding ceremony was this. Everyone who is in attendance today is a witness to this event. And as a witness, you are giving your support to this union. And I would always place a charge on the community that you are now responsible for making sure that this union stays healthy and strong. Because marriage is a community event, not just a private contract between two people. And it's with that understanding, 
I couldn't stand in a gay wedding and say that I'm giving support to this union. That doesn't mean I'm against the love that two people have for each other. That doesn't mean I have been a pastor who has been at the deathbed of a lesbian who was also with another lesbian who was mourning her loss, and I pastored them. I loved them. That grief is there. That relationship is there. I'm not against the love that they feel for each other. It's simply about anything that promotes a certain behavior. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Anybody want to add to that? Okay, we're going to move on. So Desiree and Joshua in your breakup, one of the things that, uh, a question that came in, and I was actually in there when you said this, you mentioned a relationship that you have with a man from Barbados, and you learned that his interruption is actually a good thing in conversation with friends. So, and you mentioned it was a cultural lens and you had to shift a cultural lens. So the question would be, how do we develop um, a cultural lens so that way we can interpret those things as uh, good things and not rude things, right? So how do we develop a cultural lens in a community that is culturally rich? It's a great question. I think um, it, it takes learning, and there's a lot of ways to do that. I'm going to promo my good friend Scott Welch. Um, his book, 101 Ways to Experience the Mosaic, has a lot of practical tips for how to learn about other cultures. So it's about reading and watching films and engaging in that learning. Um, so, and I'll often, as I teach literature, tell students, especially if they're like global studies students, I'm like, don't ever go be a missionary in a country if you haven't read the literature. Because you should know the culture through the stories that they tell, right? And so if you know, hey, there's a certain, so, you know, I teach a multicultural novels class. I make sure we always read a Hmong novel and a Hmong, or a Somali novel, because those are our neighbors in Elliott Park. We should read that literature so that we have a deeper understanding of the culture. So there's a lot of different ways, I think, to do that learning. Um, and that book, 101 Ways to Experience the Mosaic, has great tips for that. Yeah, that's a great resource. Thanks for sharing that. Joshua, anything you want to add to that? Um, I think that it's important to just have humility. Um, what am I called to do? It's, I'm called to be humble. Um, God calls me to be humble as a change agent, as someone who loves culture. Um, and part of that humility could mean that I go to a worship service that does not look like mine. I visit a black barber shop and I see how they talk. I hear the stories without judgment. I engage in the stories. Um, I visit the, as Desiree just mentioned, the number of amazing communities that we see here in the Twin Cities. And I humble myself and I say, how can I learn from this community? And I think that as we're in the process and we have like a posture of learning, right, we'll understand then how to uh, see the cultures and how they behave in those cultures as well. And I'll maybe just add, I said this in the session, but I'll say it again because I think it bears repeating. Get curious, not furious. So asking good questions of your friends, right? Like, hey, this is how I experienced that thing that, that just happened or that thing that you said. What did you mean by it, though? Right? Because I felt it one way, but maybe you didn't mean it that way. 
And being able to have those conversations, I think, opens our understanding of cultural difference. I like that. That's two practical ways that we can expand our cultural lens. We can read literature and we can emerge ourself, immerse ourselves in those environments. And in Minneapolis, I mean, there are opportunities to do that all the time. Well, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this in a Pentecostal setting, but um, <laughs> last week I went to the Jazz Fest in St. Paul and it was a beautiful experience. Um, there were so many people there. I like to say black Minnesota was there. And you could see the family, you could see the coach, you could hear the music, you could understand the rhythms and the cadence. It was like a big family reunion. And the beautiful thing is, I think we also, the last thing I'll say is that I think we also need to go into cultures believing that you're welcome there. I have learned that in different cultures that I've experienced, a lot of times they're happy that you're there. So the Jazz Fest was that. It was like, oh man, they're happy that I'm here and I'm happy to be here to learn. You were at the Jazz Fest enjoying all of that. John and I were at uh, one of the best Mexican restaurants with mariachi music going on. And everybody's like, I yes. love the salsa. The salsa is so good. Love like, it. Yes. Get cultured. <laughs> Dr. T, you, what were you going to say? I was just going to, with the jazz thing, it's, Pentecostalism is the jazz of global wow. Christianity. Yes. So yes. I, I think Come that's, on. that's very fitting. <laughs> okay, so Shiloh, you were talking about Sabbath, which I think is a very misunderstood and... Um, and that's a tough conversation because we, I, and many people didn't grow up with like a good understanding of that. Um, you mentioned in, in your teaching that there are a variety of ways to approach the Sabbath. And I think it'd be good for everybody, especially those that were not in your session. First of all, what's like the main goal of it? And does it have to be like 24 hours? Does it have to be by yourself sleeping? Like... What are practical ways that we, that we can actually like, you know, like, man, I do take a Sabbath and, and, and what's the main goal of that? First of all, I want to say that Sabbath is not my wheelhouse. Intercultural studies is my wheelhouse. So Sabbath was a big stretch for me <laughs> to prepare and learn and really try to hear what the Lord wanted to say, what the heart of the Lord was. Um, I think that's a really good question. I one of the kind of the big takeaways in my session was that Sabbath is a gift from the Lord to us, the gift of rest, the gift of rejuvenation, the gift of being refreshed. And then you work from the rest. You work and minister and you give and you learn out of that rest. Um, so that was one of the main things. And I think uh, 24 hours is, that was a traditional, right? The 24 hours, sundown to sundown was a traditional. I know that we live in a, a different time and a different, and also we live in the new covenant. So I don't want to get bogged down in religiosity or rituals in a way that prevents us from, like misses the point, right? I don't want that. But maybe some of you can carve out some time. Um, when Jonas and I were talking, my husband and I, and it, he just said, it's a rem he reminded me, it's like Sabbath is a disruption. 
It's a disruption from your routine and your daily everything. It's a time where you get to spend with the Lord, not just by yourself as individuals, but also as a community. Um, so things that we do to disrupt um, what's happening in the world, in our own lives, in our own work. And we said we set this time aside um, by myself for some of it, with my family for some of it, with my community for some of it, and we dedicate that time. It's set apart as holy. And could I add just to that real quick, Shiloh? The other thing that we sometimes miss about Sabbath is Sabbath was also an act of justice because everyone in the Old Testament was granted a Sabbath no matter their social status. And what it meant was, was that you could not exploit people, that you had to give everybody a day of rest. And it was a way of saying that even the economy itself has to take a back seat to Sabbath. That on this one day, we all stop. And the money and whatever else, it's not what's driving us. Sabbath reminds us that these aren't the things that drive us. And I think that's so good. Just curious, how many would say I could definitely do a better job when it comes to the idea of Sabbath in my life? Okay, good. I'm glad we had that as a breakout discussion, as you yeah. see. Um, okay, so John, I got a question for you. When you said this morning that it was the subtle idols in life that provoked a thought in me, and I think thinking about the conference, we have young people, teenagers, all the way to 80-something maybe in the room, and I'm sure that the idols aren't the same across the board, but you spend a lot of time with godly leaders. And so for us as godly leaders, what would you say would be like the top, if there is a top one or two of those subtle, those subtle idols that you see most wrestling with, if they're even aware of it? That's good. Um, like you said, there are different idols for everyone. You know, my idols aren't your idols. Basically, the definition of an idol is instead of turning to God, I turn to this thing. That's basically what idolatry is. And so, you know, the world I grew up in with baseball, I mean, I saw some of the most stereotypical ones, the wealth, the fame, the money, the women, you know, all those things I saw. But I realized that often that those were just branches off of a larger tree, and the trunk of that tree was typically pride. And it's interesting because pride can be both an idol in and of itself, but it can be something that actually spawns other idols, which makes it so incredibly dangerous. So the, there are so many people in this room, and I know you guys have had success, whether it be as parents, as business leaders, in ministry, and it's one of those things we have to be careful of that, because in order to achieve the positions you probably have, you have talents and abilities, you probably have charisma, you probably have a lot of things going for you that would allow people to say, man, you're really good at that. And it's so easy, if not held in check, for those things to be like, I am, and not even realize the pride that you have. So that's, that's number one. There's a second one that I feel like is really important for, for our culture, and I mean Westerners, America, Americans, as I've traveled, and that is the idol of comfort and security. And I go overseas and I'm like, man, these people are so hungry. And I go to some of our safe homes where women have been rescued and they are crying out to God and they're just want more and more and more. And I come back here and it's like, well, how soon can we get out and go, go watch the game? 
You know, how soon, oh, I need to make a little bit more because then I can retire, maybe when I'm 52 or something like that. And those aren't bad things, but what I do want to say is I really feel this strongly that if you're totally comfortable in all that you're doing, I promise you you're not doing all God has for you. Promise that. Because Shiloh said it right here. She said, hey, this isn't what I do. This really stretched me. And I believe in that, God's saying, yes, that's what I want. Get out of your comfort zone. I like to say, get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where God can work through you. Don't let comfort be your idol. I know we do a really good job of helping other people identify their subtle idols. I don't know how good we do at identifying our own subtle idols. And I think that's a real scary place for godly leaders, for us to come to terms with our own subtle idols. And let me just add, that's a huge aspect of when you're dealing with some of these things, is you have to have people in your life that are bold enough to be able to say, and you're close enough so you know it's out of love to say, man, I I see this. I needed that. The things that I couldn't see in myself, it took mentors, it took some family members to be, hey, I'm seeing this in your life, and I'd be like, there's no way, there's no way, and I'd pray about it and be like, there. And so to your point, you need others to be make, making sure that they're, they're walking with you and holding you accountable on some things. And we have to be aware, I just in both eyes, I love this line from John Calvin. He said, I'm paraphrasing, the human mind is a factory for making idols. And what we typically do is we sometimes think of the idols in our lives as, as the bad things that we see in other people, but idols are always what we make out of the good things. It's not the bad things, it's the good things that become the idol. So it's family that becomes the idol. It's work that becomes the idol. It's ministry that becomes the idol. Whatever is good that's not God is always a potential idol in our lives. And we have to keep our eyes open to the good things in our lives that are genuinely good in themselves. There are a lot of Christians in America. America is a good thing. America is not an object of worship. And yet we can turn a good thing into an idol. That was really good. (laughs) Even the panelists are saying that's good. So I'm like, well, then then that's really, really good. Because I'm sitting up here with like the all-stars. Could you imagine if you guys planted a church somewhere or started a university or maybe joined a softball league? You know? Or a, a restaurant. Yeah. Y'all are, okay, so I'm going to save the last question for you, but um, Nick, probably nobody in this room wants to be you, a youth pastor <laughs> in 2023. No, a youth pastor in 2023. I mean, who would want that job? That's what I meant. Who would want to be a youth pastor in 2023? I, I like it. I think it's fun. Thank God you like it. <laughs> but you want to talk about all of these issues. I mean, all of these issues that we talked about today seems so elevated, maximized. I mean, it's just hallways. If you haven't walked down a hallway in a high school recently, maybe you should one of these days because it'll terrify you. I'm a grown man, and I, I'm like, 
it's not, it's not easy. You have a very difficult job. And I, and I, I, I wonder what's, what's it like to have to balance all of this with a young mind that isn't fully developed, they're making decisions or saying things that they don't even understand themselves, and you're trying to play this role of like friend, give you some trust, earn some trust, and also lead them to the Lord, and they come from very tough background. I mean, just all those things. What, what's happening in your heart and your mind when it comes to those things? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely hard at times, for sure. Um, I think the main thing is, like, I just think about myself as a student and where I was when I was 15, 16, 17, and just the brain-dead things I was doing. And, like, the people, <laughs> it's true, but the people, like, my youth pastors were consistent. They were always the consistent ones. And so if I can provide that for a kid, like, because a kid's going to come with new issues every week where it's like, oh, yeah, I was struggling with this last week, but we're not even friends anymore. Now I have this problem. And so it's like, it's so inconsistent, the lives they live, and that if I can be the source of consistency, it, it speaks volumes. And I think the main thing, to, like, dude, prayer is so important because there's only so much I can do. Like, I can, I can provide an answer, and it might not even be the right one half the time, but I try to, I hope it is. But, like, I... I can provide answers, but they only go so far. Like, they, the saying that they, people only know, care how much you know once they know how much you care, like, that's, that's just the motto. It's like you have to care for students. You have to be a source that they can just come to and just crash and burn, and you're not thrown off by their problems. Like, if some kid says this big sin issue that they're struggling with, it doesn't really phase me because I was struggling with the same sins. And so just being that source of consistency, and it's not like we should be afraid. These are the same things like Alan was talking about. This has been 2,000 years of teaching the same stuff. Like, we have no reason to be shaken by the world. Like, we, we have no reason to be shaken by any new issue. We have the truth. So just provide the truth, provide it with love, and just keep being a, a source of love for them and a safe place for them to come. And students will keep coming back to you. I think it's, it's that simple sometimes. Awesome. Very good answer. We're very thankful for you and your ministry here. I mean, I personally have a, a son who's in the youth ministry, and many of us have children in the youth ministry, and we're thankful for you and your ministry. Okay, so Neil, uh, here's the question for you. You're sitting on the platform of your church, and 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50, these topics weren't talked about in church. And I'm just curious to know, how in the, what does it feel like to know that these are the conversations that we're having to have in the church today? Like, that, that's, this is a reality for us. We're, we're learning how to love our neighbor, and we're talking about things we would have never talked about 20 years ago in the church. How, how is this coming together for you in your mind? So, so I think that the issues are always the same. Like a hundred years ago, they talked about the things that were the issues in their day, and our source is still the scripture. That's no different. I just think one of the things that's changing is I'm so grateful that finally in the church, it feels like, in, you know, in my context of time, it feels like we're having some honest conversations. It feels like we're talking about some real things, and I think... Um, 
you know, it, it'll always go back to this. The church is about discipleship. It's not about scholarship. And so for us to just like, no, no, no. Like, you know how this is, you know, if you, I, just, I just need deeper teaching in the word, deeper, teach, you know, deeper teaching. And I'm like, the scripture said, teach them, you know, to obey. That means how to live. And so we contextualize the scriptures in, in how are we to live today, which is slightly different than how people had to live 100 years ago because they were facing different issues. But I love the fact that we have conversations like this, that we're, we're talking about these kinds of issues and contextualizing the scripture for, for us in this culture. I think that's what's so important. I think the issues over years will probably be different issues, but it's still about going back to the source and what do the scriptures say and how do we contextualize the scripture for today's issues. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And as I look across our panel, I think, man, we talked about diversity. We talked about sex. We talked about failure. We talked about rest and Sabbath. That's exactly what we need to be talking about. And I think it was so good. I think it was so good. It was just exactly what we needed. And so we're going to end with this. Each one of you, I want you to answer this question for everybody. How do you, what's your favorite way to rest? What's Sabbath for you? Like what's something you do that you'd say, oh, that's definitely, that's, that's my favorite way to rest. Start with you, Joshua. Favorite way to rest is for me to turn off social media, turn off the TV, get my family together, and connect with another family and just build with them. Enjoying one another, praying for one another, being in a community together. That's my favorite way. Uh, I, would, I would echo that. That's a great way. I also would say just for me, getting outside, um, being in nature, being away from my phone, and being with my family. So just having space to breathe and walk and, and move and just relax, uh, kind of my mind outside. Awesome. Be, just because I travel, you know, as part of my job, that there are times I'm away from home. And so for me, a large part of that Sabbath is that reconnection with family of saying to my son, okay, you and I are going to take the whole day together. You know, we're going to go do something and we're going to, and that's not a weekly thing, but it's that, that what do I do to rest? That for me is the highlight of rest for me is just getting to do something with my family. Yeah, I would echo that. I'm very fortunate. I married a Cocker Spaniel. And so <laughs> almost every night, we'll, we'll be out there today, almost every night I get home and she's got the leash in her teeth and she's doing this and we go for a walk. And that just ministers to me like almost nothing else. We just walk and we just, you know, that, that's Sabbath for me. That is rest. That is, we get away from everything. We just walk. So a few years ago, we did a fundraiser for Project Rescue, and, and the idea was to bike 60 miles to, to raise some funds. And I'd never done a bike before. And I, when I first started doing it, I was like, this is terrible. I'll never do this again. This is so hard. It's hot. And then crazy story like now present day like that's my sabbath like just getting on a bike can't have a phone in my hand and i just drive out east into the countryside and just kind of have some alone thoughts and i, I told you earlier when i was sharing I'm, I'm a pretty heavy introvert so for me that's just like a 
I get back, and like my wife will tell me, like you just when you come back, you are a different person. And when I'm not, when I'm in a, a rough mood, she'll be like, "Go, go, go on your bike, just go." go so bike. yeah, go bike. Go bike. So for so for me, that's kind of interesting that you said that, Jonathan, because really, when I feel most connected with God, and feel that my soul has been filled, that's when I'm a pleasant person to be with. <laughs> so my family's like, go watch a worship service online. Um, it, but it is, it's, it is a place where I, I connect, and, and I do like that Sunday afternoon nap that sometimes is a Tuesday afternoon nap, too. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> two days, it's a two-day, 48-hour nap every, every week. Uh, no, uh, I think that resting, resting my body, resting my mind, I do a lot of, like, thinking, both my work and my studies, you know, my, my mind is always, like, running all the time, and, and poor Jonas has to hear me, like, unwind my thoughts every day. So, I think being, being quiet is a, is a really important thing for me. Yeah, I'm actually pretty similar. Like, just having a slow morning where it's quiet, I can spend time with God that's not, okay, I have an hour before I have to get to work or anything like that. And then just spending time with my daughter is really, really fun. Like, inventing new games with her is always fun, just sitting on the living room floor and finding some new game to play and seeing the joy that it brings to her face is always really fun. Awesome. Hey, would you guys do me a favor and one more time, round of applause for our speakers. Thank you. Thank you for investing in us. Thank you for sowing seed into our lives and helping us develop our leadership. I think it was spectacular. Thank you so, so much. We have one gift to give away. If I can get somebody with the jar with the names, we have one prize to give away. Uh, so... As they make their way forward, I'm going to dismiss in a word of prayer, and then hopefully we'll have a name to pull out and give that prize away, and then we're done. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, God, for this moment. We thank you, God, for speaking to us. I think everybody's going to leave today knowing, God, you spoke to me today. That's exactly what I needed to hear. And so, God, I thank you that you speak to us. Father, I pray that what you spoke to us, God, we would respond to it. We would respond in obedience regardless of what it requires of us, God. I pray our response would be obedience. I pray that you would continue to develop us, God. I pray you'd continue to stretch us, continue to grow us. God, we have a deep desire to know you more and to make you known and so, Lord, help us as a ministry here at Cedar Valley, God, to get this right so that we can love people, so that we can love people better. God, you are looking for a church. You are looking for a group of people to say yes and to go and make disciples, God. And so help us, help us, help us. God, give us the rest of this day to be a day of rest and bring us back tomorrow for an amazing Sunday morning experience all together and help us to invite somebody with us tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray and together everybody said, Amen. Amen.